0: Fresh Image. Fresh Image is a nonprofit Catholic ministry committed to providing individuals and communities with resources to facilitate the full flourishing of the image of God in each and every single human person. Not only will you find hundreds of articles, convenient audios and presentations on our beautiful faith, but also catechetical resources to be used in the classroom, at the parish, and at the kitchen table. Today, we are happy to present Fresh Image Gospel Reflections from our founder, Tony Crescio. Tony reminds us that it is when we look into the mirror of Scripture that we discover the unique image of God we have each been created to be.
1: My dear friends in Christ, With the arrival of the 31st Sunday of Ordinary Time, We are now only one month away from the beginning of Advent. In terms of liturgical time, this means we are only one month away from the beginning of a new liturgical year, the celebration of the Solemnity of our Lord Jesus Christ, the King of the Universe, celebrated on the last Sunday in ordinary time. We will explore the significance of the liturgical calendar in greater detail next Sunday. However, for today, the rapidity with which we are approaching the end of the liturgical year has an importance for understanding the readings for this Sunday. This is something we have repeated in our last few gospel reflections. But it is important for us to keep reminding ourselves of it, especially when the culture around us takes such a radically different approach to this time of the year. At the moment, the society we live in is in the midst of making a very quick transition from Halloween to Christmas. The reason for this is not very complicated. Money. Our society commodifies all things, especially major celebrations. Instead of companies facilitating the celebration of major holidays like Christmas by providing people with the necessary means to celebrate, we have allowed major corporations to dictate our mentality when it comes to such holidays, and even the timeline upon which we celebrate them. This is a huge detriment to the Christian way of life in several different ways, one of which is that it distracts us from participating in and living according to liturgical time. For, as Christians, we ought not live according to anyone's timeline but Christ's, and the time which God has allowed us together with the entire human family for drawing closer to Him until the end of time. This is what the current liturgical season is driving at. As Christians, we ought not be hurrying towards Christmas, but taking the time to live in liturgical time. Liturgically, as has been said on several occasions, we are in the midst of the final week of Jesus' earthly life, and storm clouds are gathering around the Incarnate Sun. The best indicator of this over the last several weekends has been that various groups, including the Herodians, the Sadducees, and the Pharisees, have all been working intently to begin a movement against Jesus. For though these groups have very few common interests, they all see Jesus as a threat to their way of life and teaching. This reality becomes even more obvious in today's gospel when Jesus outright denounces the scribes and Pharisees. As we will see, Jesus' very blunt criticism of the religious and cultural leaders of his own time and place are every bit as pertinent and timely in our own. Jesus' criticism of the scribes and Pharisees in our Gospel reading for today is multifaceted, but as we shall see, all revolve around one primary vice, pride. Jesus begins, however, by exhorting his disciples to respect these religious figures, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees have taken their seat on the chair of Moses. Therefore, Do and observe all things whatsoever they tell you. The scribes and Pharisees were learned men. Intellectually, they knew the law. They knew Scripture like the back of their hand. Thus, Jesus tells his disciples that what the scribes and Pharisees taught should be done. In a certain way, Jesus' teaching here lays the groundwork for St. Paul's concerning authority in his letter to the Romans. Let every person be subordinate to the higher authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been established by God. Generally, this passage from St. Paul is read to refer to civil authorities, as the rest of the passage indeed indicates. However, St. Paul's statement is quite general, and coincides well with what Jesus says about the Pharisees and scribes having taken their seat on the chair of Moses. By referring to the chair of Moses, Jesus is using the language of teaching authority. Jesus may, in fact, be referring to actual chairs on which Jewish teachers sat when teaching about Scripture. Alternatively, he may simply be using it as a figure of speech, as Jewish teachers sat when they taught. The Church holds on to this symbolism today, and thus every bishop's church is referred to as a cathedral, wherein you will find the bishop's cathedra, his teaching chair. The same idea is used to refer to papal authority and papal infallibility. When the Pope makes a statement ex cathedra, literally from the teaching chair, his statement is understood to hold the highest authority and held as infallible. Whatever may be the case with respect to Jesus' reference to the chair of Moses, he is recognizing their legitimate teaching authority and calling for it to be respected. However, while years of study may have earned the scribes and Pharisees intellectual respect as teachers of scripture and the law, their authority went no further. Jesus goes on to tell his disciples, Do not follow their example, for they preach, but they do not practise. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to carry, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they will not lift a finger to move them. It is important to recall our discussion about the scholar of the law's question to Jesus last weekend here. The scholar of the law asked Jesus, Teacher, which commandment in the law is the greatest? Recall that this was something of a trick question. For while there was debate among scholars of the time surrounding this question, it was generally accepted that all 613 laws derived from the Torah were to be observed equally. What Jesus has said thus far today makes it seem as though the scribes and Pharisees were teaching how to live out these 613 laws but not living them out. However, this isn't exactly what Jesus is accusing them of, for he says, all of their works are performed to be seen. Jesus' criticism of the scribes and Pharisees runs much deeper than this. The problem is that, while the scribes and Pharisees literally live the 613 laws, they do so for all the wrong reasons. Recall from last weekend's discussion that the aim of living out these 613 laws that regulated everything from one's worship of God to relationships with others, from eating to business conduct, was to make one a bar mitzvah, a son of the law. In turn, the law was given so that all one said and did was dedicated to God. Thus, living as a son of the law was meant to form one, day by day, into a child of God. The problem is that this is not the reason the scribes and Pharisees live out all 613 laws. Instead of living out the law for love of God as intended, they live out the laws, and rigorously so, for love of themselves. All their works are performed to be seen they widened their phylacteries and lengthened their tassels. The Mosaic Law required that small boxes containing parchment with Scripture verses be worn on the forehead and left forearm during prayer. Thus, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 8 exhorts the people, Bind the commandments of the Lord on your arm as a sign, and let them be as a pendant on your forehead. These small leather boxes are phylacteries. Along the same lines, in chapter 15 of the book of Numbers, the Lord instructs the people through Moses to make tassels for the corner of their garments, fastening a violet cord to each corner. The purpose of these tassels, God explained, was to remind those who wore them to observe the commandments. Like the commandments, phylacteries and tassels were meant to direct the people to God. Akin to a wedding ring, they were tools used to remind them of their covenantal relationship with him. However, just as they had done with the observance of the law, the scribes and Pharisees had made these items, which were all about God, about themselves. They enlarged them for the explicit purpose of catching people's attention and drawing it to themselves so that people would see how religiously pious they were. Jesus' criticism of the scribes and Pharisees here echoes what he had said in his teaching on prayer in the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 6 of Matthew's Gospel. There he had taught, When you pray, do not be like the hypocrites who love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on street corners so that others may see them. Instead, Jesus said, When you pray, go to your inner room, close the door, and pray to your Father in secret, and your Father, who sees in secret, will repay you. The contrast Jesus is drawing here is not between a private and public life of religion and prayer, far from it. Jesus would have the whole world see our lives and be reminded of our Heavenly Father, as he says in chapter 5 of Matthew's Gospel, where he calls us to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Your light must shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Heavenly Father. Instead, the contrast is in intentionality. The scribes and Pharisees pray in public precisely to be seen, just as they widen their phylacteries and lengthen their tassels to be seen, What Jesus is saying here is, don't be ashamed of your faith. Live for God and allow others to see the love you have for him to inspire them to do the same. In Matthew 6, Jesus characterizes those who show off their religiosity in order to attract attention to themselves as hypocrites. He does the same repeatedly in a series of woes he pronounces against the scribes and Pharisees in the section immediately following our gospel passage for today two of which are especially enlightening. For example, in verses 16 and 17, Jesus says, Woe to you, blind guides, who say, If one swears by the temple, it means nothing. But if one swears by the gold of the temple, one is obligated. Blind fools, which is greater, the gold or the temple that made the gold sacred? Then, in verses 27 and 28, Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs which appear beautiful on the outside but inside are full of dead men's bones and every kind of filth. Even so on the outside you appear righteous but inside you are filled with hypocrisy and evil doing. What Jesus is saying in these two verses and the other woes which he pronounces against the scribes and Pharisees is that they are so caught up in the minutia of how one lives out the law that everything has become about appearances rather than about love for God. Said differently, the scribes and Pharisees have perverted the law, which was supposed to train the people in loving God with the whole of their lives into a show, and more precisely, a show wherein they cast themselves as the stars. In short, as Hans Urs von Balthasar would say, the Pharisees were caught up in the ego drama, rather than living and leading the people in the theodrama. We can go a bit deeper here and draw from what Jesus says to name three spiritual diseases that the scribes and Pharisees suffer from. The first is the source of the latter two, and it is pride, the mother of all vices. The Latin for pride is superbia, which means more literally above life, from super meaning above and bios meaning life. The vice of pride, then, gives one an inflated view and sense of self. One sees oneself above life, if you will. Everything else revolves around and is ordered to oneself. This is why von Balthasar's category of the ego drama is so apropos here. That this is the core ailment the scribes and Pharisees suffer from is made obvious in the final verse of our gospel passage for today, where Jesus says, Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Plagued with pride and thus seeing themselves above life, the scribes and Pharisees have made even the worship of God and prayer about themselves. This leads to the second spiritual disease the scribes and Pharisees suffer from, vainglory. What exactly is vainglory? In question 132 of the Secunda Secundae of his Summa Theologica, St. Thomas Aquinas explains this vice by first explaining what glory means. And following St. Augustine of Hippo, he writes that glory means clarity with respect to one's character, meaning that one's character or goodness is clear and known to oneself or others. Aquinas notes that glory is not in itself bad, which will come into play later in our discussion. Aquinas then explains that glory becomes vain in three ways, the third of which is most important to our discussion today that glory becomes vain when an individual refers their goodness, or apparent goodness we might say, to themselves, rather than referring it to the only source of goodness, the good itself, namely, God. This is precisely what we see Jesus charge the scribes and Pharisees with today. He says that they love places of honor at banquets, seats of honor in synagogues, and honorific titles that accord them respect and even reverence, such as rabbi, father, and master. Once again, the religiosity of the scribes and Pharisees is all about themselves. Consequently, they will do just enough to retain that honor and reverence in society to feed their prideful appetite. But they will do no more than just enough. This is the third spiritual disease the scribes and Pharisees suffer from, and it is the one Jesus names explicitly, hypocrisy. Using the Pharisees as an example in his work, Heroes, Saints, and Ordinary Morality, Andrew Flesher describes hypocrisy as characterizing someone who conscientiously never fails to do their duty, but who at the same time consistently does not go above and beyond. Thus, Jesus says of the scribes and Pharisees, They tie up heavy burdens and lay them on people's shoulders, but they will not lift a finger to move them. Again, the religion of the scribes and Pharisees is performance, one that casts themselves center stage to glorify themselves instead of God. By living in such a manner as leaders of the people, the scribes and Pharisees lead the people astray. Thus, in verses 13 and 14 of Matthew, chapter 23, Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You lock the kingdom of heaven before human beings. You do not enter yourselves nor do you allow entrance to those trying to enter. By making their religion about themselves, the scribes and Pharisees, in essence, teach this aim of their faith to others, thereby leading them to live in a manner at odds with their covenantal relationship with God. In this, Jesus is echoing the prophet Malachi, whom we hear from in our first reading for today. There, God says to the priests through the prophet, You have turned aside from the way, and have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi. I, therefore, have made you contemptible and base before all people, for you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. Because you have perverted the covenant and led others astray from me, God says, I have made you contemptible and base before all people. To this day, based upon what we see and hear in the Gospels, Pharisee is used to describe a self-righteous and hypocritical individual. Those who exalted themselves have indeed been humbled, as Jesus says to us today. Having discussed these negative aspects at length, let's turn now to the positive. And here I want to draw back in the concept of glory. As mentioned before, St. Thomas Aquinas says that glory, and even the desire for glory, is not necessarily a negative thing. What matters is the referent, The vice of vainglory characterizes those who seek glory for themselves. And as we have seen, this is at the heart of Jesus' denunciation of the scribes and Pharisees today. How, then, could it ever be good to seek glory? We can ask this differently and question whether or not a Christian should seek glory. And the answer is absolutely. Jesus begins his prayer on the eve of his Passion at the Last Supper in chapter 17 of John's Gospel, With these words, Father, the hour has come. Give glory to your Son, so that your Son may glorify you. I glorified you on earth by accomplishing the work that you gave me to do. Now glorify me, Father, with you, with the glory that I had with you before the world began. Glorify me, that I might glorify you. Jesus himself prays for glory thus indicating, as Aquinas says, that glory and even the desire for glory can indeed be a good. And Jesus shows us how in his prayer. The glory he desires is not for himself as it is for the scribes and Pharisees. Even though as the Son of God incarnate, this would be totally legitimate. Instead, he desires to be glorified for the sake of glorifying the Father. Remembering that glory is clarity with respect to one's character— Jesus is praying that those who have witnessed His life and who are about to witness His passion will see Him clearly, will see Him for who He is and thereby see the Father's love in Him, will see that God so loved the world that He sent His Son for its salvation to draw the human family back into the eternal embrace of love that is our God. The glory that Jesus prays for is directed to the Father and desirous of accomplishing God's purpose for the human family. He prays in verse 21 of the same chapter, So that they may all be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. In effect, this desire for glory is the same Jesus teaches us to live out in his Sermon on the Mount, when he teaches us to be the light of the world. In chapter 5, verse 16 of Matthew's Gospel, Jesus says, Your light must shine before others. Why? Not for yourselves, but so that they may see your good deeds and glorify your heavenly Father. This glory is precisely what characterizes the lives of all the saints. Echoing Jesus' high priestly prayer and his work, Love Alone is Credible, Hans Urs von Balthasar writes that it is in the saints that Christian love becomes credible. They are the poor sinners guiding stars. But, and here is the key point made by Balthasar, Every one of them wishes to point completely away from himself and toward love. It is only such radical self-denying love that will convert the world toward the Heavenly Father. For only such love has no guile. Only such love has no ulterior motive. And thus only such love is finally credible. My friends, this weekend Jesus warns us against the perennial temptation to pride. The temptation to make life all about oneself, and thereby, in essence, to deify ourselves rather than live as creatures of our loving Creator. However, far from being deprecating, Jesus is teaching us the path to true glory, the glory that every human creature has been created for, which is to share in the very glory of God by glorifying Him. As St. Irenaeus teaches us in Book 4 of his great work against heresies, the glory of God is a living man, and the life of man... Consists in beholding God. To aspire for true greatness is nothing else than to aspire for the eternal embrace of the Heavenly Father. For the Christian, this requires the virtue of magnanimity, the virtue that recognizes that we are indeed worthy of greatness and gives us the strength to pursue it. However, the human creature is not capable in itself of such greatness. Rather, the human creature can only be drawn into the life of the Creator by the Creator. Thus, the virtue of humility is required in order to give magnanimity direction. These two virtues are displayed by Christ and mirrored in the lives of the saints up and down the centuries, but by none are they better exemplified than by Mary. In response to being told that she had been chosen to be the mother of the Son of God, Mary exemplifies these two virtues in the proper order. First, recognizing her creatureliness and exemplifying humility, she utters her fiat, saying, Behold, I am the handmaid of the Lord. May it be done to me according to your word. And then, visiting her cousin Elizabeth, she exemplifies the virtue of magnanimity in her Magnificat. My soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. The Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is His name. In Jesus and Mary, we see the greatness of humility on full display. A humility which recognizes that God has done great things for us by sending His Son into the world so that we might have life to its fullest. A humility so full of the greatness of God that every word and action glorifies God for love of Him and love of neighbor that all might be one as Jesus prayed.
0: thank you for listening to this week's Gospel Reflection. For more resources, please visit us at freshimage.org. And remember, when you live a fresh life, you will be a breath of God's fresh, life-giving air to the world.